You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card. And you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live, stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. Clear the aisles. The projection is that Smicha. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Kolakowski. Um, two days after the Super Bowl, and I know Yitzhak is not a Super Bowl fan, but there was something about the Super Bowl that got me thinking, which I think really takes us into at least the first part of today's show, and maybe even the whole program. Um, you know, the Jason Kelsey who was on the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, And a lot was made of the fact that Jason and his brother Travis were playing. And Jason, they were asking him, is he going to retire or not? So this is what Jason said. He said, the end of the season is not a time to make a decision. But right now, I'm fully exhausted mentally, physically, emotionally. And it's getting harder every year. I'm nowhere near the player I used to be. And then he said, It's only going to go the other way. And whether you can be accountable to your teammates and perform at that level and mentally have the difference to be the difference maker. So it got me thinking that we celebrate these sportsmen, but they themselves know that their time is very limited on that stage. Jason Kelsey is in his 30s, and he's already talking about that it's going the other way. Because in that sport, youth, which translates into speed, strength, dexterity, energy, it's only there for a certain amount of time. You have the outliers like Brady and others who could go into their 40s, but most football players are spent after a very young age. They're there to be lionized and to be admired, but of course the even without the brutal aspect of the game, the fact of how uh, the toll that it takes on bones and sinews and muscles, the point is it's something that flashes for a while. And of course, many of these people afterwards, they are ambassadors and they become coaches perhaps. Uh, they have uh, they go into movies like Jim Brown and other Fred, and, um, Fred Williamson and other football players, Bubba Smith, who tried to go into acting. But we realize that in in sports, we realize that this is a magic moment. 
that that sports person has, the youth and the age, it goes together. And afterwards, it's only memories and things they can write books about. Uh, many times it's look of, of child actors and actresses and how they have uh, navigated the roles to adulthood. Um, and I mentioned Roddy McDowell uh, the other day that I never thought he ever navigated it as successful as he was as a, as a young actor. Elizabeth Taylor, of course, is different. She showed tremendous promise as a youngster and then, of course, became one of the, the greatest actresses or movie stars of her time. Uh, but what it made me think about was also something else in the Super Bowl. There was a commercial, uh, which I caught. The last 12 minutes is all I saw of the Super Bowl, but I was enough to see a commercial for T-Mobile and a familiar jingle and song came into my head. It was the summer loving song from Greece. I've never seen the, the film, but I've heard all the, the soundtrack. And of course, the song was sung originally in the movie by Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta. And here was the music, basically the same words, but trying to uh, pitch T-Mobile and trying to push T-Mobile. And there was this bald guy with a beard but the face, it was rounded. There was, I guess, somewhat of a punch. It was Travolta. Here was Travolta, 40-something years later, singing that song. And at the very end of the commercial, striking the pose that made him famous in Saturday Night Fever. Off pod, that you remembered him from Welcome Back, Cotter. He was part of the Sweat Hogs um, that... Uh, Gabe Kaplan taught. But clearly, that television uh, uh, appearances that he had meant that people in Hollywood or the movie makers saw something there. I think what they saw was some talent, some ability to act, but more of that, they saw a hunk. They saw sensuality. They saw a person that would be a heartthrob. There was just something about his face, his mannerisms that oozed the idea of being easy and ready, someone people would be attracted to. And that's why Travolta really catapulted into films. Now, is Travolta ever going to be considered one of the great movie stars? I, I am <laughs> The film that I remember most from Travolta's uh, oeuvre is, is uh, the Brian De Palma film, Blowout. Uh, which is basically a very much of a Hitchcock Truffaut type of film. Um, De Palma was always borrowing from everybody. I remember Travolta was in that. And again, but, but Travolta really, I think, had a hard time after he was this young, sensuous stud to sort of make that jump, to go into still be an actor, to still carry the weight of what made him attractive and continue throughout as age takes its toll there's just so much makeup and prosthetics and 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 toupees can do and well yes well travolta is still a known person even and he, he's he still perhaps could you know could earn a lot of money for t-mobile but he is an example and i think there's others of people that were pushed into movies and tv because they had that it quality but that it quality was as fleeting as Jason Kelsey understands his own physical strength and ability and speed and stamina to be. We've talked about Burt Lancaster 
together. I've recommended Elmer Gantry as a as a great film to watch, and especially because of his Burt Lancaster's deserved Oscar-winning performance. But Elmer Gantry was made in 1960. Burt Lancaster was born in 1913, and he came into film somewhat on the late side, uh, not in his 20s, not in his teens. Uh, he came in the late side. He was already in his 30s, maybe even sort of till his mid-30s, till people uh, saw him on screen. And a number of very, very, really impressive, powerful film noirs that were made uh, post-World War II, um, directed by who we talked about last week, Robert Siadmak. Um, he also made another film for, for Siadmak uh, called, under Siadmak's direction, Criss Cross. Um, Brute Force, which was a film that we've talked about before here, where he was he was in prison versus Hume Crone. Um, uh, a, a, a number of, of, of very impressive films where you would say he was just this beefcake. But unlike Travolta, I think Lancaster understood that he wa- needed to develop more skills than just how he could, uh, you know, make his face look sensual. He developed the skills of an actor uh, and, and of a, almost of a character actor, uh, even where he was playing uh, the main part. Now, he, he, he didn't always, you didn't always buy it. Uh, you didn't always, in, in, in I think it was in uh, Comeback Little Sheba, which I think was in the early 50s, where he's under makeup but you can see the central power that he has. He's still very much of a, ma- ma- a machismo where he's married to the frumpy Shirley Booth. And, uh, you know, he plays a, a chiropractor married to uh, Shirley Booth. And, you know, they have a marriage sort of of convenience and understanding. Um, and you can see that Lancaster feels trapped in that marriage. And and the film is really, you know, Lancaster plays it a very, a very understated, per- understated type of performance. Um, uh, it, it was, it was, and he, I don't know if those films that he made trying to go against his type, uh, were that successful, but he at least was, was trying to discover a different part of himself because the part of himself that came out in the forties was explosive, was, was fearlessness, was a sense of determination, was, uh, and, 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 and it moved through him because he had been a, a, a performer in a circus. He had been, him and his, his friend, Nick Cravat, had been part of uh, the K Circus. He was able to do tumbling, uh, much more than Cary Grant. We talked about his history, but he was able to do uh, acts that he, and of course, in the film Trapeze that he made in the early 50s, he did a, a, a number of his own stunts. And that's what you got when you saw when you when you saw Lancaster. Bogart always had a body double, like in any film. And Bogart, whoever it was, Bogart, Cagney, Tim Holt, you can always tell if you look carefully that it's a different person. Not so with Lancaster. Lancaster was someone who was really, uh, in many ways. Uh, a throwback to Harold Lloyd and some of the other stars who did their own stunts. Now, there were some times where maybe the director had to step in, but the, the 
the filmmaking had advanced to a point, especially with some of these uh, filmmakers who wanted to get these type of close-up shots, you could see the type of acrobatic things that Lancaster was doing that really made the film so exciting. The movie The Pirate and others but even in the in the film noirs, you can tell it's Lancaster himself that's going through the fake fighting, and he's not somebody you want to fight with. He had uh, this pent up power that you have to be scared of, and uh, it, 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 even though he might not have always been the most well educated person, but there was a, a a sense of humanity and understanding, a common sense that he was able to exude in a way that made him beyond, I think, just uh, the type of person that, oh, we're waiting for him to take your shirt off. He was someone who I, I think was able to set in motion in the beginning part of his career what would later become his bread and butter as he got older. Now, in the in the 50s, uh, he was a very popular star. Um, he played in uh, one of the versions of uh, the gunfight of the OK Corral together with, uh, he was together, of course, with Kirk Douglas. He was with Kirk Douglas in seven films. But I don't think Douglas, although Douglas was a, a very strong, important actor, Douglas did not really have that type of appeal that Lancaster had. Douglas was a, a star, and he was a person who could carry uh, a film, but not in the sort of the Vinnie Barbarino, Robert Mitchum style that, that Lancaster had. He was that total package. And in films where both of them were together, it always seemed to me that 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 Kirk Douglas, despite his 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 personal strength, was somehow in the shadow of Burt Lancaster. Um, Lancaster and Douglas both had a desire to create, and this was where the, the studio system was starting to sort of peel away at that time in the fifties and the late forties and fifties, and they had their own independent. Uh, production companies. They sometimes had to use studio lots and other things to make that happen. But both Lancaster and uh, Douglas uh, were part of that new trend. Uh, Bogart, of course, eventually also had his own production company. But Lancaster, throughout his whole filmmaking life, had his own production company. And for a, a while, uh, it, it was very successful. They produced a number of interesting films where Lancaster uh, would do things differently than perhaps in the standard studio. One of these films, in fact, the first one, uh, is what I wanted to talk about, a film um, from Nyan's. Many people, when they hear this title, say, well, that's such a great title, right? Because so many of us have blood on our hands for things we've done, and somehow the relationships that we get into is a way to sort of kiss that blood off, that somehow I can find within love a way that I can forget about my past. Now, it's based on a, a, an English novel of the same name. And um, it, it really is a wonderful film to watch. Um, it is a film where Lancaster is the only American and again, they sort of mentioned that he was a Canadian or he wants to go to back to Canada. It's always something about, you talked about the 39 steps. There's always something about when it's sort of a person who doesn't have a, an English accent, he's somehow either a Canadian in some ways. But he plays he's, but he's plays an American. And he, an American who, as the film develops, you see that he has been a, a GI. He had been in a Nazi prison camp. Although that comes out you know, you know, mo- very much in the middle of the film. 
And he jumped ship as if he did not want to continue in the army um, or in the Navy or whatever, uh, whatever sort of station where he was. And he ends up in a London bar. And this is where the film opens. And it, the, the first 10 minutes are, are really wonderfully shot. Uh, it is, it is, you know, you're in a film noir, it's dark, there's a fight. And, and, and here you have Lancaster being told to leave the bar. And when the person decides to touch him, the barkeeper, and gets a little bit physical with him, Lancaster reacts. He's like a coiled spring. And his fist rockets out to the jaw of the barkeep. And the barkeep falls over and hits his head on uh, on some metal or some object, which kills him. And then Lancaster runs out of the bar. And the first 10 minutes of the film is a very exciting chase scene that was filmed on the Universal Studio lot. It was supposed to be London at night. Um, but there's someone who witnesses the quote unquote murder. And that is someone that we've talked about here on our program, um, Robert Newton, who was in the upset that was in obsession. That was the film about the guy who wanted to put his wife's lover into this room and torture him there for all that time and kill him and have him die and have him disappear. It was a great, great, that's a great film also, but here's Robert Newton way over the top. In that film, Robert Newton is almost like a, uh, a, a dignified Englishman who is diabolical. And this film made one year later, um, he is uh, an, a Cockney accent to the sky. Now, Robert Newton, of course, was in David Lean's version of Oliver Twist together with um, the terrible uh, <laughs> a portrayal of Fagin by Alec Guinness, terrible as far as we Jews go. But um, and Robert Newton played Bill Sykes, who, of course, is one of the um, the wife beater in uh, Oliver Twist. Um, and uh, in this film, however, he is a, a great heavy because, uh, you know, that he is a black marketeer who's going to somehow cash in on the fact that he knows something about this guy. This guy escapes the police. But somehow, Robert Newton's character, whose name is Harry, or Addy, Addy, you know, Addy, um, Addy is going to somehow make use of this violent, powerful American. Uh, as he's ducking into the ins and outs of the alleys of London, he ends up somehow in the small apartment of Joan Fontaine, who's name is Jane Wall. I believe was the surprise for me in this film, how well she pulls this off. Uh, she was actually uh, a bit younger than Lancaster. Uh, she, of course, and her sister, Olivia de Havilland, uh, were raised by English parents. So the film could make a claim that everybody in this film is a real Englishman. Um, that was part of how it was different than some of these phony English films that we have talked about before. But Joan Fontaine uh, plays a, a, a woman who has had her lover or uh, die in the in the war? He was a member of the RAF, and now she tries to dedicate her life to helping people. It's interesting. It's looked that just like the the film The Third Man, uh, Graham 
based on the Graham Greene novel by Carol, directed by Carol Reed, penicillin is, plays a very important role here. In all of these post-war films, uh, it was clear that the country was still hobbling and was not in a state to be able to be uh, 100%. Besides penicillin, uh, there's also a lot of, you see a lot of real details like ration the the ration tickets were given out in the in the place of money there's a scene where uh lancaster uh playing this fellow called uh, bill saunders um uh realizes that he's on the run and he has no money and he mugs someone and takes his wallet and when you see what's in the wallet you see most of it is just the rations that were still being used even a number of years after World War II had ended. But as I said, England had it a little bit better than what was going on at the rest of the continent, France and other places. And therefore, um, the penicillin that was being produced and being distributed by Joan Fontaine's hospital ends up being uh, a key aspect of this film because that is something that Newton wants to get his hands on. And just like, you know, it turns out that uh, Lancaster, uh, when after he finds refuge with her, she doesn't report him to the police. Um, She somehow is obviously attracted to Lancaster the same way every girl in the audience was attracted to Lancaster. There's something about him. Turns out that he never got past the sixth grade. She she's able to see uh, in a number of, of scenes his violent nature, his tendency. But as with trips to the zoo and other places that were, I think, uh, uh, filmed in Griffith Park and in California, there was supposed to be uh, the zoo in London. I'm not sure what the name of the of the zoo that's in the heart of London. But um, it turns out that his how he hates the cages, how uh, when the animals are are roaring in the cages and getting their meat, he's having an intense reaction without doing any flashbacks. But she's able to see that this is a, a someone who's suffering from what we would call, it's clear that he's suffering from PTSD, what we would call it today. Um, and her medical training um, allows her to overcome her disgust to his his rough aspect and to somehow be sympathetic to him. There is a great scene where um, they're coming home uh, from uh, an outing uh, where they they where she experienced what it means to bet on a horse. A really wonderful scene, and I guess it must have been Santa Anita Racetrack where they filmed it. And Joan Fontaine is a little demure, small girl. And you know, Lancaster puts her puts puts her up on his shoulders so she could see the horse racing. Uh, on their way back, in one of in, in in a train that they were taking back to London, uh, Lancaster uh, gets into a uh, into a, a fight with someone who wants to share their room, and it comes out with a simple little story about showing a little card trick where Lancaster was trying to hustle the fellow and use the card trick to sort of get money from him. And when the person didn't want to do it, um, Lancaster uh, explodes again in anger and, you know, is about to throttle the person. Um, When Joan Fontaine's character sees this, she realizes that she's dealing with someone who is, who is so violent that she doesn't want anything to do with him. Um, 
he, he runs through the streets. Uh, he assaults a policeman. He finally, the policeman, the policeman get him. And there's a, a scene where he appears in front of a, of a British magistrate and he's sentenced to six months of hard labor. But beforehand, because of his violent nature, he, he is sentenced to flogging with a cat of nine tails. And here is the scene where, again, it's shot by the director, Norman Foster, who was a protege of Orson Welles. I know he made a lot of real, really, you know, inferior Disney films, I think towards the end of his career. And he made a, in this early part of his career, he was, he was, he was, he was one of the key directors of the Mr. Moto franchise, uh, starring, of course, our good friend, Pierre Laurie. But uh, in this, Foster was very close to Orson Welles and in a, a, a sort of like a Wellesian, a lot of Wellesian touches in the film, especially this one where he goes into this house, this base on Mishpat, and you can see him uh, ripping his shirt off, as I said, and being flogged. Um at least in prison, it seems like uh, his character is able to realize what he has done wrong up to a point, and he yearns for the kindness that he was able to find uh, with Joan Fontaine. And after he's in prison uh, and comes out of prison, he goes to her house, but she's also searches for him, and she finds him, and it turns out that she gets him a job driving the trucks that of course have the penicillin and here is where you have uh the uh everything hitting the fan where the blackmailer uh robert newton comes in and says that he's going to now that he already has a prison record here if he'll if he'll snitch on him and he'll get the barmaid to identify him he'll hang in prison and he uses that in order to get him into this big caper that he was going to able to make a lot of money that uh, on the black market with the with the penicillin. Um, suffice to say that the, the the tension builds when it turns out the night that he's meant to make the drop and pretend that he got beaten up on the way. Uh, Joan Fontaine decides to come with him, and by this time. They've expressed their love to each other and how much they mean to each other and how, um, you know, as, as, as difficult of a life that he's had, as angry as he is, the only thing of stability that he has is her love. And she realizes how much she has missed a man, how much, even though she's doing good for the people and she's trying to be this demure, dedicated woman for the good of the country, she realizes how much the love of this powerhouse means to her. And um, I'm not going to, you know, spoil exactly what happens here, but suffice to say that there's a great scene with Robert Newton and Joan Fontaine, where, um, you know, you can see, as the film says, a little bit of Lancaster's animal masculinity even seeps through her into her. I really think it's really one of Joan Fontaine's better performances. And it really is very typical of what Lancaster brought to the screen, the type of power, um, uh, the type of energy uh, and, and why, although you wouldn't say he's a Spencer Tracy, every man, uh, like people tell you what about Jimmy Stewart or Tom Hanks, he was in a way, a super 
every man. And I think that's really what what he ended up continuing doing while he was experimenting with a, a person with with, with with deep flaws, with with a character that didn't need to always be explicated uh, by some exposition. You know, you know we, we, I've talked about Wayne and the searchers um, and, 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 but Wayne was not capable of the type of emotion, emotional power that Lancaster was able to, to bring to the screen. I really think Wayne's Oscar in, um, in true grit was pretty much a sympathy Oscar. He was an icon, but he was not the artistic artist that Lancaster was. Um, and, you know, it, it could be the, the, you know, the the tipping point where Lancaster sort of starts to, you know, you know, get into more what we would call character roles. It might have been the From Here to Eternity where he, um, you know, he, he sort of, again, that is like an all-star cast that has, you know, you know, Deborah Kerr and Montgomery Clift and Burt Lancaster, um, you know, and, and Montgomery Clift also was a person who was brought to the screen because he sort of was like a pretty boy, a sensual pretty boy. <laughs> you know, people didn't realize, of course, that he was gay and other things, and he had a lot of mental issues, uh, which Lancaster, you know, kept under control. Um but I think after Premier to Eternity, as you get into the 60s with Seven Days in May, Lizanna's Raid, The Swimmer, which is one of the craziest films, except Bert was, you know, naked, jumping into water everywhere and swimming. But, you know, he was able, I think, to uh, to retain that star quality as a character. Um, someone pointed out to me when I told him what I was going to speak about today, um, that even in some of his last films, like... Well, Atlantic City, of course, he, you know, he was sort of, you know, here he was again, you know, the the possible sensual power as he uh, as he lusts after Susan Sarandon there. Um, but, you know, you know, local hero, some of these films or Field of Dreams, where he is in a way uh, the nominal star, although Kevin Costner is the one who sort of has is the person who builds the stadium. You know, Lancaster, I think, dominates. And I think it's something he was able to do. And part of it, I think, was, I said, part of part of it was because of what he was able to mine out of out of himself. And this is really reflected really in his in, in his in his life as well. He was a very uh, much a liberal person. He was very much against the, the, he, uh, the House <laughs> Un-American Committee. He he protested against it. He was a very he was very vocal. Um in the civil rights movement, he and his wife famously hosted Martin Luther King and his wife uh, the night before the March on Washington. He took part in the March on Washington. He spoke. Um, um, <laughs> he was a proud member of the ACLU, uh, very much a liberal person, but a tough liberal, very different than um, Charlton Heston, uh, who sort of you know, became a, a star in Hollywood a couple of years after um, Lancaster. I, I mentioned Charlton Heston not only because of their difference in poli- in politics, but also because Heston's, of course, most famous role was as Moses uh, in the Ten Commandments. Maybe you could say Ben-Hur is, is just as famous. But um, Lancaster, actually, and I remember when this movie came out in 1974 in a made-for-TV quote-unquote miniseries, uh, Lancaster played Moses the lawgiver. 
that wasn't the only Jewish part that Lancaster played. Lancaster was familiar with Jews. He was born in Manhattan. He was, he was, he, he, um, but he, so he was very familiar, of course, with Hollywood and many Jewish people and many Jewish friends, including Kirk Douglas, of course. But Lancaster actually played two other Jews besides Moses, like the ultimate Jew. He also played Shimon Peres in Operation Thunderbolt which is a movie, Yitzchak, you might know, that they used to play in camps all the time in the summer during Tishabov. That was like the movie that they would show, was, of course, about the uh, Entebbe raid. He played Shimon Paris. And also in a, uh, in, a, in a movie that was made towards the end of his career, he played um, Leon Klinghoffer. He played, who was, of course, was killed by, on the Aquila Laro, he's killed by Palestinian terrorists. So he was a person who, who, who played Jews and played very, uh, very important ones. People who later became president of Israel, the leader of Kal Yisrael, a uh, person who died, uh, Al-Kiddush Hashem. And, uh, but that's Bert. And I think that, uh, you know, you know, that's, you know, he was almost born with a name that needed to be put on the screen. He didn't have to change his name like Kirk Douglas or like or Tony Curtis, who was also a very good friend of his. Um, Burt Lancaster, born with that with 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 a name that seethed power, and he continued the whole way. One more movie with with Lancaster, which was an interesting one, um, was the Island of Doctor Moreau. That it, the which I guess might have been his only like a science fiction or horror movie. And, you know, to me, the greatest version of that movie would be the uh, the version with Charles Lawton and, and Bela Lugosi. But uh, he, he, they say that the version that he was in in the 1970s was more uh, true to H.G. Wells's novel. And especially one aspect of it was that he actually looked like how the part was written in the novel as opposed to Lawton, and then later, uh, <laughs> uh, I, uh, I I I can't. You know, there are very few Phil, very few Randall, authors also. would, very few authors would probably describe, um, you know, a, such a, a character of magnetism with the features of Charles Lawton. Burt Lancaster had looks that were unique, but classic. He right. was a, and you can see even in his old age. You you could see the the strength of his jaw, the 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 prominence of his eyes. You know, somebody that was re- really in a very much an arresting presence of power. That's what you really see in, in this in this movie. But it's just not in a certain sense, though. It's not as uh, you know Lawton. He really you know he was chewing the scenery of that. Yes, movie, yes, you know, <laughs> as he always did, and then and then. Uh, you know, uh, Brando did it also, which was not as as good. But this was fellows. I think Lancaster was able to exhibit the slow fuse burning. Like you always knew, there's something. When is it going to happen? When is he going to explode? How much of it is he going to take? Um, and and you you have that in a number of his films where he's so affable, he's so personable. Um, he's someone who can can charm anyone, but yet you know there's something waiting to happen. And I think that's part of what he brought brought where he does play a villain, is that you know he can have that mannered gentility, but you know that there's something under the surface. And maybe part of it, Yitzhak, is that when people saw these films, 
it's the it's the combined memory of this person that you've seen in other films. Um, I, I think that's what happens automatically when you have a, a person who's a star like a brand like a Brando or especially Burt Lancaster. When he played in these later roles, I think you know you're waiting to see elements of some of the, those earlier films. But you know, again, he he was felled unfortunately by a stroke. Uh, but he, till that stroke, he was very very active, um, and, and and took his parts. And he was you know you you know he was willing to still be that that star. But we've got another Bert who, who I guess we're being misable for. I guess we're still in the Shiva form of a different Bert that you wanted to talk about. So, yeah, just really, I, I was only thinking about him because he just passed away, was uh, Bert Bacharach. I, I don't know if he might have been a distant cousin from from the Chavos Yor. I don't know. That I, that I don't know. But uh, he, uh, I didn't realize, you know, what an impact he had on the musical world. You know, some certain things you only start to appreciate afterwards, you know, because, you know, I, I always thought of him you know, not as, uh, you know, anything so significant. And then reading about, you know, his story and, and his work really, you know, opened up my eyes to a lot of things. But the, the one movie that I really, you know, would would have associated him with was, I think, his first, the first time any of his music was used in a movie, as far as I know, was The Blob. And uh, that was the movie that really, you know, came to my mind when I heard that, <laughs> Backrack passed away. I was like, oh, we, we could, uh, it's an excuse to talk about the blob and also about a, a friend of mine who was also a musician, also who, who passed away last year, um, Chris Yeworth, whose father was the director of the blob, and he was part of the crew. And he uh, has a lot, you know, he had a lot of very interesting stories and things that he always shared with us over the years at Monster Bash. And it was, uh, you know, we knew he was very sick and it was, uh, it was sad. I think actually Chris's mother, uh, who I believe is still alive, wrote wrote most of the incidental music and everything and the, the love theme to the blob. But the theme of the blob, which is a funny song, you know, Beware of the Blob, that was, uh, you know, credited to Burt Bacharach. And it really shows his his versatility that he was able to, you know, do really touch so many genres of music. Uh, one of the things that you know was brought up in a lot of the discussions uh, about his work was the fact that you know his music is often called easy listening, and he said, "Well, it wasn't easy writing." It, he put in so much work uh, based on his expertise, even though he he was Jewish, he didn't really have much connection to any Yiddishkeit. Uh, he said, "You know, even though he grew up in Queens, you know." Uh, most of his friends growing up were not Jewish and he, and he didn't really want them to even know that he was Jewish. And I don't know how much he knew what that meant. But the interesting thing was, was his very dear friend, Marlena Dietrich noted uh, that he enjoyed very much visiting different countries to appreciate the music of the different countries. And one of those countries was Israel because of the musical appreciation that Israelis have uh, put out how much he produced. And one of the uh, film critics that I listened to on the radio mentioned that you know he was the writer of the of really the background music for for much of the 
second part of the 20th century that, uh, you know, and, and we don't even realize, you know, like uh, whether, how many different artists, pretty much everybody at some point had some connection to him, such a, a prolific uh, composer and really, you know, connecting that with, uh, you know, a, 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 an expertise in his field, meaning he, he was classically trained and he took that classical training in a direction away from the way he was trained. You know, one of the things that, that you know, you know, Chava, my wife, is a big, you know, she herself is a very accomplished musician. And she talks often about historically the impact that the, uh, the Malaysian gamelan had on music when Debussy and others heard this music and it transfigurated Western music hearing this very different style of music and while you know they all took you know in order to to do that they took their classical motifs and and they were affected by this uh, oriental motif that they had never heard before and yeah. and how that affected them and and in a certain sense that was how Bacharach you know he was classically trained but he rebelled but he intentionally rebelled almost like uh, uh, he intentionally rebelled without rebelling because that was also part of it was like E. Cummings you know not using uh, proper grammar but when when we would bring that up in school they said yeah but to, before you can be E. Cummings you have to know the rules in order to break them. And he and and the way Bacharach worked was that he managed to break the rules without it sounding like he was breaking the rules, and that was really yeah. Well, was... really, I mean, if you, you look at his filmography, I mean, like you know, close to two thousand, you know, sort of films that have used some part of his music. Um, I know, I know, in the Blob, his name doesn't even show up in the credits, right? But we know, uh, you know, he worked with Hal David, of course, another Jewish fellow. Uh, Hal David wrote the lyrics, and uh, I mean, there's so many uh, songs that were inserted into Hollywood films that Backrack wrote. What's New Pussycat? Um, I think he was also uh, the the music in Butch Casting the Sundance Kid. It was also Bert Backrack, and that's you know that is you know that in my head. Right, that is the uh, that's the Oscar winner, which has no connection to the movie at all. Right, that's a, that's a funny thing. You don't think of that you know, when you think of that song. You don't think of it as a western. Uh, some of his early early works were, you know, the story of my life. Yeah, look, the look of love. I mean, you know, it, most of the songs Yitzhak that I grew up with. Fair for you. Yes, and, yes. And, but, you know, why the, the birds always appear, and, and, and you know that that's which the was the Carpenters. That's called close to you, and that of course, yeah. Is, I mean, look, that, the, that was, know, of course, the, the Simpsons, Carpenters. You know, the the early Simpsons by that time, of, you know, when the Simpsons were, you know, the, that music was already had already had had a history, but uh, you know, they uh, a lot of his songs were in the first you know classic episodes of the Simpsons in the nineties, you know, harkening back to you know when Homer and Marge were younger in the seventies, you know, there those were the songs that were the songs that really were of course look i would tell you you know the, the song that i think we could probably still sing from him is what the world needs now 
is love, sweet love. That's the only thing that there's just too little of what the world needs now. Right? That's that song is. Uh, come on, you can sing that uh, on every single day and say yes. We need more Ava in the Welt. Um, right? Um, uh, a, a song that I remember that was also sung everywhere in the early seventies was. Do you know the way to San Jose? Right. <laughs> and the right. fact that he 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 captured, you know, with with the way that he used this music, it really it, it was. Yeah, it's, it was it's a credit to Hal David too. I mean, the correct pieces. First of all, a film that was one of my favorites growing up uh, called After the Fox. It was written the the screenplay was written by Neil Simon. Vittorio De Sica was the was the Italian was the director from Italy who made the film, but the music of After the Fox was um, was Bert Bachrach. Peter Sellers again playing a great performance as sort of like this the the, the this bumbling yet brilliant uh, thief and master of disguise. Um, it's it's Bert Bachrach's music for it is really sets the tone, you know, uh, perfectly for those films the 1960s, along with um, another uh, score that he wrote, which is was probably something that you probably heard a lot when you were growing up, uh, the theme to Arthur, uh, you know, Dudley Moore's film. Um,
Wow, that is really a time capsule, Yitzchak. I mean, you, it shows the power of hard work. Uh, oh, well, look, Bacharach gets the Oscar along with the two other uh, composers of this of this piece, but it really does capture the the late seventies, early eighties. It really is, in many ways, the type of you talk about easy listening, but it really is transportive. Um, also, even you know this, this. I don't know if the song could be written today because we don't have time to hear all that. Uh, to, to hear all that variance uh, that yeah. that that song brings, um, but it's also I think one of the best things Bachrach did because it's connected to the film. I mean, Arthur was a person who was wealthy and didn't have a direction, and you know he was just spending his money in New York City and, and not really being aimless. Uh, and that's where you know he drunk. And so the the the, the song, unlike Raindrops which is also obviously going to be obviously as a classic will uh, everyone will always remember that that the, the song is as like a way to be inspired and to sort of be positive it really has very little to do with the plot of uh, of the hole in the wall gang uh played by Redford and Newman in that film Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid whereas i think this song goes very well with the film yeah. and it it really in a way cements the film and really allows the film to maybe for some people to be considered a comedy classic forever. I don't know if we're, we're ever going to recommend it, but I, I can definitely recommend that music. These <laughs> sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, and have something new in each of those decades. And by the nineties, it was the nostalgia that he was bringing up that, you know, inspired the, the uh, Austin Powers movies and he actually appeared in them and, and right. Michael Myers said that that was like having Gershwin appear in your movie. Like it was such a right. In the, in the, in the first, in the first Austin Powers film, he he shows up actually playing the piano and yeah. uh, and singing there. Yeah, look, Perth is you know whether he recognizes Judaism or not, he definitely uh, had the had some. He was definitely channeling a little bit of the Noyim Zmiras Yisrael of 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 David Amelech there for an ending again. All right, my friends. I'm happy that we were able uh to deal with these three birds. And watch your step on the way out. We'll see you next time. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 